I want to say basically the exact same thing that I said last week before we really get started and dive into this, but I just want to remind us we were talking about things that they've been debated for centuries, they're going to be debated for centuries to come. I'm not here even attempting to or think that I can end that debate on some of these things. My goal here today, just like last week, is to simply point us to Jesus, point us to what his word says. We're not going to bog down in a lot of these details. In all honesty, we could probably preach a sermon on each of these little miniature stories and parables and actually have enough to talk about and discuss those details. And maybe if we had MCs this week, that's what we would do. But we simply don't have time today, nor again do I think that is the overarching point of this section of Scripture. So today, we will dive further into Scripture. I want us all to understand what Jesus is saying here, and I want to encourage us to go home and read it more and to dive in. It's not that it's not important to try to understand. It's just being okay if the answer is not clear, because Jesus is still worthy of worship. And then secondly, as always, every week you're going to hear the same thing. We want to see and savor Jesus Christ in this text more and more today than when we came, or later today than when we came in this morning. And hopefully we will do that. Uh, I took out all the Kool-Aid and snake jokes. I learned that lesson earlier this morning. So there's really not much left, to be quite honest. Only, um, no, I took all those out. But before we start, I do want to pray one more time just that God would open our ears and our eyes and to hear what he has to say through this. So pray with me. Father, I come to you this morning knowing that I am a a sinner uh, and just a man speaking words, but I pray that I would speak your words this morning. I pray you would move me aside, move me out of the way. May I have nothing to do with this other than just being the filter by which you speak. I pray that you would open my eyes and my ears to hear these words, but I'll pray that you would open everyone in here's ears and eyes as well. Open their hearts. May these sink in so that we can go from this place proclaiming this Jesus to the world. We love you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Eschatology. See, I don't even know how to say it. Premillennialist. Amillennialist. Postmillennialist, pre-trib, post-millennialist, amillennialist, pre-trib, mid-trib, preterist, whatever. If any of those words meant anything to you, Todd and Eric, you're the only ones, you're probably going to be disappointed with this sermon because that's about the last time I'm going to mention those things. I was going to dive into those. I really was. And I didn't. That, that's basically the end of that story. I felt like that we needed to go a different direction I do think that those things should be things that we discuss. Again, I wish we had MCs this week. I really do. This is one of those times that I think this needs further discussion, just not here today. So, to begin, I do want to play a game. Now remember, Mission Church does not have a rule that you can't speak back to the pastor. Apparently all of y'all think we have that game. We don't actually have that rule. So you can speak back to me. So I'm going to say a set of dates. All you have to do is tell me what is common about those dates, all right? July 4th, December 25th, January 1st. All of those are? Holidays. Holidays. Hey, look at there. December 7th, 1941. February 26th, 1993. September 11th, 2001. Tragedies. Attacks on the U.S. soil, right? 
All right, last one. May 21st, 2011. October 21st, 2011. September 29th, 2011. May 27th, 2012. And May 9th, 2013. Predictions of the return of Jesus. What else do those dates have in common? They all passed. And we're still here. These are specific dates that people have pointed out using math and all kinds of other things. I I don't know what they all did. That predicted the end of the world. This is not a 21st century phenomenon. This is not a 1st century phenomenon. The, The disciples were clearly kind of wanting this, right? They just asked Jesus, hey, when are you coming back? He hadn't even left yet. When are you coming back? When are you coming back? So from 1st century till now and probably until Jesus does return, there are going to be people that are setting these dates and picking these dates. Jehovah's Witnesses have picked less, no less than seven different years for what they call the Armageddon is going to happen. And if you have watched the movie by that name, you probably wanted the world to end as well because it's terrible. But they've predicted seven years that have again all passed and not ended. Between four men, Harold Camping, Pat Robertson, Hal Lindsley, I didn't mean to laugh while I said his name, but I kind of did. Hal Lindsley, Ron Wineland have predicted 15, just between those four men, 15 dates. Now, in one of their defense, 2037 hasn't happened yet, and he's older, so he's probably going to be dead by the time that year comes anyway, so we can't even hold him accountable. But either way, 14 of the 15 have passed, and we're still here. And lastly, just for kicks, there is a sizable number of Christians, sorry, of Christians who have predicted that this August 21st solar eclipse this year is kicking off the end of the world. Google it, look it up. It's actually, it's not like five people wrote a blog. It's a pretty decent amount of people think that the 21st of August of this year is at least going to start the beginning of the end. I don't think they're going to be right because none of the other ones were. But what we can gather from all of these failed attempts is trying to predict something that God has blatantly told us we wouldn't be able to predict is that God is right and we're not going to be able to predict the things that God has blatantly told us that we're not going to be able to predict. Did everybody follow that? He says specifically right here, you're not going to be able to predict this. Why people have read that and go, but that doesn't apply to me, I'll figure it out. I don't understand. This, is, this seems to be, this first verse we read here, one of the most clear point-blank scriptures in all of scripture. I don't feel like we have to preach what, it, what does it really mean? What does it really say? It says specifically here, no one knows when I'm coming back. And then he says something that's actually pretty remarkable and almost alarming. He includes himself in that statement. Jesus says, no one knows when the Son of Man will return, including the Son of Man. Now, at first glance, this can seem a bit confusing and and almost contradictory. Because after all, one thing we can all agree on is the Bible is abundantly clear that God knows all things. Everything. He knows how many dust particles are in this room. He knows how many hairs are on some people's heads. I know how many are on some people's heads. It's zero. But God knows everything. Secondly, we can all agree that Jesus is God. The Bible is clear. God knows everything. Jesus is God. So if the Bible clearly tells us that God knows all things and that Jesus is God, how does Jesus not know when he's coming back? And 
some of the explanations that people have offered in the past border on blasphemy. We'll get to that. You see, diminishing in any way Jesus' divinity, Jesus being God, is heretical. If anyone is teaching you ever that Jesus was not God or is not God, run from that church and never return. After you tell the pastor that he's a heretic and he shouldn't be preaching that, right? Jesus is God. But also, diminishing Jesus' humanity is equally as heretical. He has to be both. He has to be fully God and fully man. We see in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself by taking the form of a mere mortal, a human. That means he self-limited himself in ways that we can't really even understand because we've never had to self-limit ourselves in those ways. But he self-limited himself in many ways in order to be able to identify with our humanness. Knowledge is one of those ways. But it seems like this is the only one that trips people up. We know that God is omnipresent as well. He's everywhere, right? The Bible is clear. He is everywhere. He is all over the earth. He is everywhere in the universe. He is everywhere. Jesus is God. And yet no one seems to bat an eye that Jesus walked everywhere. Or he rode a donkey to places. He didn't teleport to Jerusalem and tell the disciples, I'll meet you there. He walked just like a human. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The Bible is very clear. God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, with whoever and whatever he wants to use to do it. Jesus is God, and yet he allowed men to overtake him. He allowed people to murder him on a cross in a gruesome fashion. We see examples of this self-limitation all over the Word of God. The Bible even tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom as he grew up. That implies to me, and if you disagree here, this is just another one that we may have to agree to disagree. That implies he probably made non-sinful mistakes. He probably stubbed his toe and learned, let's try not to do that again, that hurt. He probably did things that some of our kids are doing, not sinful mistakes, but just carpentry mistakes. Oh, cut that board too short. I don't know if he used boards, but you get the picture. He grew in wisdom. How do we grow in wisdom? We learn from our mistakes. We learn from things and say, don't do it that way this time, right? So he grew in wisdom. Not knowing the day and the hour of his return is just another example of this self-limitation. Jesus was fully human, and we must never diminish that. If we remove his humanity, we remove his ability to be tempted like we were, which is a key factor in his salvation if we remove his humanity we remove his ability to be our direct substitute he has to be a human being sacrificed for other humans the importance of his humanity cannot be overstated and this is yet another example of Jesus limiting himself so that he can identify with us as sinful humans even though he never sinned but this does bring up a secondary question Does he know when he is coming back now? Now that he is gone from this place and he's no longer here on this earth, does he know? My answer is probably. There is no scripture that I can point you to in Revelation chapter 17 that says, and now he knows. But what we can do by taking the whole counsel of scripture is I I see no reason why limiting the knowledge of his return serves a purpose any longer. 
He doesn't have to identify with us as humans anymore. He has served that purpose by dying on the cross. That doesn't mean he doesn't identify with us in our pain and our troubles and our trials and all of those things because he did experience it. So he still has that knowledge as if he needed to learn it being God, but he did. He learned it through experience and he still has that. Why he would need to still self-limit that knowledge, I don't know what purpose that would serve. But if he still doesn't know that he's still God, this is one of those details that we can get hung up on and discuss for hours on end and we can, at the end of it, neither of us change our mind and we agree to disagree. And in essence, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it really doesn't matter because he's going to come back when he comes back. So from there, we see Jesus saying, no one's going to know, so stop trying to predict it. I don't even know at this point. But here's some things you can for sure know. You may not know the date. You may not even know the year or the season that I'm coming back. But there are some things you can definitely know. And he go, moves on from here to telling us some analogies, some parables, so that we can better understand the things that he is allowing us to know. We will look at four points, four specific things that we can know, and then how do those things shape our response in our day-to-day -day lives. So the first thing we can know, looking at the first few verses after 36, after he's made it clear that we cannot know when, the first thing that we can know is his return will be sudden. So that's the first one. It will come suddenly. Jesus tells them to look back at the time of Noah. People were carrying on about their everyday lives, marrying, eating, drinking, and being merry. All of those things, doom was right at their doorstep. And it came suddenly. They were doubting this flood was even going to happen. You get... Scripture doesn't say this, but you have to assume that a dude building a big boat in the middle of the desert in a place that it's never rained was probably getting ridiculed, getting ostracized, getting told he's stupid for doing it, get, asking why, they, why he was doing it, all of those things. And yet God's wrath would be fully poured out suddenly and everyone's fate would be sealed at that moment except for those inside the ark. To further this idea of the suddenness of the coming of the Son of Man, he tells us in two different analogies about two different sets of people. One man will be working in the field, or two men will be working in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding, one taken and one left. Again, there are a few details here that we could get bogged down with and overanalyze. That probably could be a whole sermon in and of itself. Is this the rapture that people talk about? Maybe. Could be. What's not clear here is that whether the person being taken is the good one or the bad one. Is the person being taken to be with Jesus and the person left the one that is condemned? Or is the one being taken the one that has been taken to be condemned and judged and the one left because Jesus is coming back gets to stay with Jesus? I do not know. What I do know is that there are two camps of people in that story. They're in a third group. One will be left, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. One will be taken, whether that's good or bad, or I don't know. But that's the only two options. There is no third middle ground where we get to just hang out and be okay. There's either a, there's a good group and a bad group. Another thing that we can glean from this section is that his coming may be swift and sudden, but it is not without warning. Even in the time of Noah, Noah spent years building this ark. 
Scripture, again, is not perfectly clear. Some say 100 years, some say 120. Either way, it's a long time. He's building this ark out in the middle of the desert. People see it. People know. At some point, at least one person asked him why he was doing it. So it is reasonable to assume that Noah was telling them, repent, come to the ark with me. You can come, you can come with me. You can be saved from this wrath that God is going to pour out. No one did, as we know the rest of the story. But he had to have been telling them something is coming. The flood is coming. God told me it's coming. Save yourself. Repent. We see, we fast forward. John the Baptist and Jesus, what are they preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, 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 so that the swift and sudden judgment of Jesus when he returns does not have to apply to you. You can come with us. Spare yourself from the wrath by, wrath by placing your faith and trust in Jesus now so you will be ready whenever it is that he returns. Christ's return to judge the living and the dead is not something God decided spur the moment and didn't tell anyone or forgot to tell anyone. Some of the biggest arguments my wife and I can get in is when I think I've told her something and I look back and I go, oh yeah, I just meant to tell her that and I didn't, Right? God doesn't do that. God doesn't forget to tell humanity, hey, Jesus is coming. This has been years and years and years of people telling humanity, repent, save yourself from this wrath. It's coming, and it is going to apply to some people. There's two camps, remember. It's going to apply to some. It's not going to apply to others. Get in this group. This is the gospel we preach. This is the same warning we preach now to the world. Jesus is coming back. Save yourself. Not that you can save it, but you get the picture. Put your faith and trust in Jesus so that you can be saved from that wrath. Change your ways. Repent. Turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. So we have all been warned. Secondly, as we look at verses 43 and 44, so we see that Jesus' return will be sudden. We see that Jesus' return will be unannounced. It's not going to be some guy, hey, he's coming tomorrow, guys. You better get ready. Tomorrow's the day. Jesus uses what I call the home alone metaphor here to reiterate to his listeners that they cannot just get ready when they know that the robbers are coming at 9 o'clock day before Christmas. Okay, if that was the case, we'd all just stay awake and put Christmas ornaments by the, by the window for Jesus. I don't know. I don't know. The, the home alone reference falls apart somewhere, Okay. So if Kevin, or as Jesus calls him, the master of the house, had known when the thief was coming, he would not have gone to sleep, right? But he says in 42 specifically, stay awake. This is not just a don't sleep reference. This is stay awake spiritually speaking. Stay awake so that you will be ready for the return of the master. We've all probably known at least one person in our lives who is putting off this and what they always call it, getting right with God. Well, you know really what that means exactly in their terms, but they act like it's just some switch to be flipped when they get ready to do it. And they always use these life excuses, right? Well, when I get out of college, I'm going to sow my wild oats. I don't know if people still say that. Maybe I'm just old. When I get my career started, or when my kids go to college, or when I retire, or whatever, excuse after excuse, after excuse and what they are failing to heed is the warning that Jesus is going to come suddenly and that Jesus is going to be unannounced a decision to follow Jesus later in life is simply a decision not to follow Jesus 
That doesn't mean that person can't be saved later if Jesus tarries. But at that moment, it's not a decision to follow Jesus later. It's simply a decision not to follow Jesus right now. And we cannot count on knowing when we are going to be able to submit to Christ. So we must preach the gospel to the people around us with this exact same urgency that we see John the Baptist and Jesus preaching it with. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It could come tomorrow. It could come today. So repent now. Don't put it off. Don't wait for your kids to go to school. Don't wait for this. Don't wait for that. Do it right now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is going to come like a thief to rob a house and readiness is not an alarm system that we set it and forget it. Readiness is not something you do one time and call yourself ready. Readiness is a lifelong decision, is a lifelong commitment to maintain your readiness. It's not a test you know is coming on Friday. You study all week for that test. You forget the moment you're done with that test. You forget everything you learned. Maybe that's just me. I bet not, though. It's a, you must be ready to take that test on any given day. Readiness must be maintained through our faithfulness to Jesus. Moving on to the third example we see in verses 45 through 51. So we see Jesus' return will be sudden. Jesus' return will be unannounced. And now in the, the metaphor of the servant put in charge of the other servants, what we can know about Christ's return is that it will be delayed. Now, delayed is obviously a subjective term, but we also know he has not returned yet, so it has been delayed so far. In this story, there is not a hint of the servant thinking the master isn't coming back, though. He knows he's coming back, for sure. It is clear in the text. He knows the master is coming back. He just thinks he's got time to live lawlessly and to sow his wild oats and to get his kids through college. You see how these build upon one another? He thinks he has time to mistreat the other servants and eat, drink, and be merry because the master, he won't come back this week. He just left. But we know that he is coming. We know that it will be delayed, but both of these factors reiterate that we do not know when he is coming. We even know why he is delayed from reading other scriptures. 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is, is patient with us. He is patient with those that are lost, hoping they will come to faith. That is why we preach the gospel, so that they can come to faith. And then we place it in the hands of Jesus, because he is the one sovereign over whether they believe it or not. Jesus, who is outside of time, a thousand years like a day, a day like a thousand years, is waiting so that his elect can become believers in real time, and then he will return. This is why it is not selfish of us as believers to pray that Jesus would come back later today. And we've probably heard someone say at some point, well, I know where I'm going, so I don't, it don't matter about anybody else. Now, usually that is a selfish statement, because usually they're using it as an excuse not to be obedient or evangelize. But if you are truly saying, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready, and I know that when you're ready, you'll return. I pray that that is today. It is not selfish to eagerly await his return because we know, based upon Scripture, that he is not going to return until all of his elect are ready for his return. 
You see, if not a single sheep is going to escape his grasp that is saved, then all will be ready when he comes back. And if he waited another thousand years, not another sheep would be saved if that's when he was going to return. It doesn't matter how much more time. All of those that are going to be saved will be saved on his return. Jesus' return may be delayed, but it's never going to be early. And one of the elect is going to be like, oh man, I was going to do this tomorrow. You, you should have waited one more day. No one is going to say that. His return will not be early. All who are going to be saved will be ready upon Jesus' return. What it matters is what we do while we wait. Will we be the wise and faithful servant carrying out the business of the master? Or will we be the, found as the foolish servant carrying out the desires of our sinful flesh because we think we have just a bit more time? And lastly, we see that his return. So we've got sudden, unannounced, delayed, and irreversible. What we see in 20, chapter 25 is that Jesus' return and judgment will be irreversible. So we, he tells this parable of the ten virgins. Again, this probably could be a sermon in and of itself. We will not focus on all of the details here. What we want is the broader picture. So we see ten women have been invited. Essentially, we'll call them bridesmaids. That's basically what they're, they're invited to this wedding feast. Seems half of them have simply brought their lamps with, with oil in it. And then half of them have brought their lamps with oil in it and some extra oil in case they run out. Lo and behold, the bridegroom is what does it say? He's delayed. Again, these build upon each other. All four of these are just bricks to the same building. The bridegroom is delayed, so they run out. So because he is delayed, the unprepared bridesmaids run out of oil. They beg the other five for oil. The other five say, we don't have enough for all ten. Five good lamps are better than ten no good lamps, so they keep their oil. They send the other five to go buy oil. Apparently they do, or they do something. It doesn't really say, but they leave and come back. But when they return, they knock on the door, let us into the feast, and what does the bridegroom say? I do not know you. You can't come in. And the door is shut. The door is closed, and they're not allowed into the banquet. There is no second chance there is no plea for mercy, but we ran out of oil. How were we to know you were going to take too long? There is no banging on the door and begging to be let in. They are simply turned away. And then it ends that parable. The language here is eerily similar to what I always lovingly call the scariest verses in all of Scripture, in Matthew 7, 21-23, where it says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a very difficult text to hear, which is why Eric made me preach it, of course, because all the difficult ones I get to do. But we see the same dynamic here. The bridesmaids assumed they would be let in when they came back, but instead they were met with a terrifying thought. I don't know you. You can't come in. This is where we see that there were probably going to be lots of surprises on the day of Jesus' return. There's going to be a lots of verdicts that people didn't see coming, thinking they're in this category. Lord, Lord, did I not fill in the blank? And Jesus is going to say, 
You may have done those things, but you did not put your faith and trust in me for your righteousness. You did not put your place, place your faith and trust in me for your salvation. You trusted in whatever you just filled in the blank with, and therefore I do not know you. So we see sudden, unannounced, delayed, and irreversible. So how do these four elements frame our response? First and foremost, this is every Sunday you're going to hear something to this effect. Know Jesus. Know Jesus, the man, the master, the bridegroom, the son of man. Know Jesus. Know Jesus, not your own works, not your religious actions, not your I went to church every Sunday for 50 years, not your I read through the Bible 50 times, not your own righteous works. Know Jesus, not your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith, or my daddy was a pastor, so therefore I'm ushered in, because none of that applies. Know Jesus yourself, and know Jesus, not just things about Jesus. Don't just know the stories. Know the real, true, authentic, biblical Jesus, because he is the only one that will save. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only one that places you in one camp or the other, of the left or the taken, whichever one of those is the saved saved category he is the one that places you there believing and trusting in this Jesus the one we find in scripture not the one we've made up in our minds secondly we actively wait we are constantly living in the shadow of Christ's return knowing it could be any time because we don't know when it is we should expect it to be any day now we should live as if it could be any day now practically speaking what does that look like well, I, won't, I won't name any names here in case you don't know, but there's a couple in here that is expecting. They know the due date. Well, let's just make up a random date, December 24th. So they're, they are they're preparing for this, right? They're getting stuff together. They're putting their nursery together. From what I understand, Adam, I mean, uh, the guy that is expecting has projects to do to get ready for this, and he is putting the nursery here and then rearranging it and all of those things. And, and from what I've seen, Megan, I mean, the, uh, the, the woman that is expecting is cleaning and, and nesting and whatever stage that is. And they're doing all of these things. But December 24th is still five months away. Come the second week of December, when the baby literally could come at any given moment, it's going to take on a whole new meaning of we're, we're preparing for this baby. Adam, or whoever, will be looking at his phone constantly. Did I miss a text? Did I miss a phone call? I hope I didn't miss a phone call. I am ready to literally drop everything I am doing at this phone call to go to the hospital or to go get my wife and take her to the hospital. Whatever it is that has to happen, nothing will be more important than that in that moment. You see, there is a difference in the way you wait when you're three months pregnant versus when you're eight and a half months pregnant. There's an urgency that does not exist yet at three months that fully exists at eight, eight and a half months. You see, this doesn't mean they stop living life. This doesn't mean they stop doing things and just sit on their hands at home waiting for the signs that the baby is coming. They continue to live life in light of knowing the baby could come at any given moment. It could drastically change our lives 
at the drop of, our, of, of a hat, but we are still active in our waiting. This is what we are called to in this passage. We must live in a way that we are ready for that day no matter what, but we don't let that stop us from living. It just affects the way we live. It doesn't stop us from doing anything. We are actively waiting, not just waiting for that day. We are actively waiting. We are living in anticipation of Jesus' return. This should affect your whole life and the urgency by which you live and do everything. We cannot wait around, expect someone else to do the work we have called to, been called to do. We cannot rest on our laurels and say selfishly, well, I know where I'm going, so I don't have to share the gospel. Or I know where I'm going, so I don't have to do this or be obedient in this way. This feeds into our other response. We eagerly watch. You see, the foolish servant lost sight of this. He should have been watching the hills to see when his master was going to pop back over the hill. And to, a faithful servant would say, look what I have done while you were here. I have taken care of everything that you have made me a steward of. This is what we should be doing. One eye on living, actively waiting, and one eye on the skies expecting Jesus to burst through it at any moment. And not scared of that. Not dreading that. Doing that with joy. We keep an eye on the hill, so that, not so we have time to change our behavior before the master gets here but so that we are constantly reminded to have our lives in order, not because our lives in order save us, because our lives in order point to the one that is coming to set everything correct, to set everything right. Why would we not want Jesus to come fix this place today? Look around. There is much to be set right, and we should want Jesus to pop over that hill or to burst through those skies at any moment. And it is at this point you have to ask yourself a question that only you can answer. It's the same one we talked about last week. Am I eagerly awaiting the return of the king? What does your heart do when I say truly and wholeheartedly he could return today? Do you leap for joy? Or do you say, could we maybe push that back till tomorrow? I've got a few more things or next year or the next year. I've got a few more things I want to do. Is it dread or is it joy? Is it hope or is it sadness? And what does that answer say about your perspective on the things of this world? Are you willing to let them go at a moment's notice, like a man getting a call from his wife that the baby is coming, or like the rich young ruler we learned about just a few short weeks ago? Are you holding on tightly to things that you would be embarrassed to be holding on to when you meet Jesus face to face? I made the mistake this week as I prepared of reading some of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And I say mistake because it made me feel like I was going straight to hell when I die because I'm not like him, right? In that, I highly recommend all of you read it, actually. Um, he is... <laughs> He is 19 when he's writing most of these. I can't even tell you the things I was doing when I was 19 without blushing up here, so I'm not even going to go into that. But he was 19 reading, writing most of these. But he wrote some resolutions for his life, not New Year's resolutions, just things he wants to live by for the rest of his days. They perfectly illustrate what an eternal mindset looks like. I have three of them. One, resolved. Never do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life keeping that in mind 
for me when I watch so many episodes of The Office in a row that Netflix is surprised I'm still watching it and goes, are you still watching this? No human should be watching Netflix this long. Have you left the room? Are you still here? Netflix itself is surprised that I'm still there, and I usually click yes and just keep watching. But never do anything in which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Secondly, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. I, I can't even expound on that. Third, resolved. Never do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would be above an hour before I should hear that last trumpet. Do you hear the anticipation in these words? This is a 19-year-old kid begging for Jesus to come back tomorrow because he's working hard and he is, he's probably tired from working hard and just wants Jesus to return and set all of it right. You sense that this has not caused him to be lazy He's not sitting and just waiting. We will explore the third W, so we've got waiting, watching, and next week we'll be working with an eternal mindset next week. But can you just see that Jonathan Edwards has one eye on the sky here at all times, no matter what he is doing, has one eye hoping Jesus will burst through those clouds at any moment. He's resolved to never do anything he would be afraid to do if he knew the trumpet was sounding in an hour. May we truly truly live that way that is an eternal mindset we must get ingrained into our everyday life this doesn't mean you can't watch the office i hope because anyway this doesn't mean you can't do those things but do those things understanding there is still work to be done there is still things that we must do what did we see last week we're going to face persecution temptation deception and tribulation right it's very clear that those four things are coming our way if we are believers. But who will be saved? Those who persevere to the end. You see, what we can ascertain from the parable of the bridesmaids is that half of them were not prepared to persevere. They were expecting everything to just go as planned. I've got enough oil for the hour he's supposed to be here, and that's it. Everything's going to go as planned. Ain't going to be no persecution, tribulation, deception, temptation, none of those things. I don't have the oil for those things. I've got the oil for the hour he's supposed to come. You see, they weren't prepared for the darkness that they were to face. They were invited, or they wouldn't have known about it. They had clearly received an invitation. They had come ready and willing to be there, but they were not ready to persevere. The kingdom is not for those who simply accept an invitation. They wanted to be at the party. If not, they would not have come as far as they did. They accepted the invitation. I can't be the only one in this group that RSVPs for something two months ahead of time, and then when the day gets there, be like, why don't we just tell them we weren't coming? We just don't want to leave the house, right? Because we were watching The Office, probably. But these people RSVP'd if that existed back then, which it probably didn't, but they made their way to the party. They were wanting to go. They even left to go get what they needed and come back. So they came twice to the party. But you see that the kingdom is not for those simply who accept an invitation and the kingdom is not for those who simply want to celebrate the good times. The kingdom is for those who accept the invitation, live prepared, live with anticipation, and those who persevere through the darkness that ensues while the bridegroom 
is delayed. Every person in here can name someone by name that they were positive at some point in their life. They were on the straight and narrow path. And now you look at their life and you can clearly see that they are not. They were not prepared. They were not actively waiting and eagerly watching in anticipation to see Jesus. You see, if, the, if we were to sum up this passage in a theme, the theme of this passage that, that Hannah read is more about judgment than it is about salvation. It is more a warning than it is an invitation. But what we clearly see is a delineation between those who are going to be gathered from the four winds, like we see in verse 31, and those who will be turned away and told they were never known, like the bridesmaids we see in chapter 25. May we be the ones who are eagerly awaiting the bridegroom, no matter how long he, he is delayed, no matter how long he takes. May be, we be the ones with one eye on the skies at all times, begging for today to be the day. May we not be caught unaware like the foolish servant or the people in Noah's time. But may we live like Jonathan Edwards resolved to live. May we live like Moses considering the reproach of Christ is better than the treasures of this world because we are looking to our reward. Or like Paul who said he does not consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us in Christ. Christ is coming back. We don't know when and we don't need to know when. We need to live as if it is tomorrow and hoping that it's today. There's a whole, there is not a whole lot of information regarding heaven in Scripture, to be quite honest. It doesn't go into, there are parts, but it doesn't go into great, great detail about heaven. There's actually quite a bit more discussion of hell in Scripture. And it was at this point that I was going to go over some things that we do know about heaven, because there are some. There is definitely some information David Platt did a whole 47-hour Bible study one time at Secret Church about heaven, hell, and there was plenty to be said about heaven. But sometime in the middle of this week, I realized that there's probably a reason why we don't have a lot of description of the place of heaven. You see, what we, we do know is that the Bible is far less concerned about the what, when, and where of heaven, but much more concerned about the who of heaven this is the reward we look forward to we look forward to Jesus he is the reward no matter where heaven is no matter what it looks like and no matter when it starts it is only heaven because Jesus is there that is the reward we look forward to so may we live with him in mind in all things may we live as if he is the end goal in all things May we live eternally minded when we are doing anything in our lives. May we have an eternal mindset so that we are prepared when the master returns, when the bridegroom returns, when whoever you want to call him in Scripture returns. Because when it is all said and done, God is not going to quiz you on advanced eschatological theories and dynamics. Not saying it's not okay to know those things, but he's not going to ask you. He will not be concerned if you were an all-millennials, pre-millennials, mid-trib, pre-trib, or anything else. He's simply going to be concerned if you were faithful. He's simply going to be concerned. Did you place your faith and trust in Him and Him alone for your righteousness and your salvation? And did you live as if that were true? 
Are you prepared for his return? Are you actively waiting? Are you eagerly watching? If not, if you're in this room, you have just heard the gospel. You have heard of Jesus. You have heard that he is worthy of this. He is worthy of your lives. So that places upon you a need for a response. You're either going to walk out of here and say, I don't really care, or you're going to fall to your knees and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're either going to be left or you're going to be taken. Because there's only two categories. If you are ready for his return, and only you can answer that for you, if your answer is yes, then your command is clear. Go proclaim this gospel to any and everyone that will listen to you. Go and proclaim this gospel that has saved you so it can save others. And then you can join me as I pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come today. Let's pray that right now.